0: If you've been on social media this year, there's a good chance you've heard something about measles outbreaks, vaccine exemptions, and the terms pro vaxer and anti-vaxxer. The US and Europe, among other places worldwide, are seeing an increased number in vaccine skeptics. This has helped fuel the spreading of preventable diseases such as measles, which was actually considered to be eliminated in 2000. I am Melba Torres, and this is Science Bread. Today, we won't be discussing the politics surrounding vaccines, but we will look at the science behind them. Throughout this episode, you'll hear the expert voices of Dr. Schenkel.
1: Hi, I'm Alan Schenkel. I'm an associate professor in microbiology, immunology, and pathology at the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences here at CSU.
0: And Dr. Zabel.
2: My name is Mark Zabel. I'm a professor at Colorado State University. I am an immunologist, and I study infectious diseases and the immune response to them.
0: So, vaccines. What are they, and why do we use them? To understand why we use vaccines, we first need to understand our biology. Every day, we're exposed to an inconceivable number of microorganisms notably bacteria, viruses, and fungi. They are in the air we breathe, they are in the food we eat, they are on our tables, in our shoes, on our eyelashes, trillions of them inhabit our organs. And our skin. Skin is an organ, so, our organs. Now, most of these microorganisms don't care for our existence, and they go on with their lives without interfering with ours. Some others are actually beneficial to our health, such as the ones that live inside our organs. And then there are the ones that can make you feel sick, can cause permanent damage, or just straight up kill you. These are the ones we know as pathogens. According to calculations carried by really intelligent people, it turns out that pathogens only make up about 1% of the microorganisms on the planet. But if you think that this number is small, you might want to think again. It is estimated that there are 100 billion to 1 trillion species of microorganisms on the planet. That is a 1 with 12 zeros after it. And that, we're talking about species, we're not even talking about net number of microorganisms. I mean, you can find about 100 million to 1 billion bacteria in a teaspoon of soil. And we're not even counting fungi and viruses here. Okay, anyways, the point here is that pathogens are everywhere. Now, microorganisms have always been there. Which means that in order for you to be listening to this right now, your ancestors as well as all other life-forms on the planet must have evolved ways to cope with these tiny invaders. To fight off pathogens, our bodies are equipped with a microscopic equivalent of an army. We have white blood cells which act as soldiers, and a vast range of molecules that make up an arsenal any military could only wish for. Our bodies are actually pretty great at war, which is why you don't get sick every day and why you don't need to pay a visit to the hospital after cutting yourself with a sheet of paper. Unless your immune system is compromised, of course, which we will talk a little bit about later. Supposing you have a healthy immune system, you should be able to fight off a lot of the pathogens that you encounter. But it is not like we're naturally immune to every pathogen out there. A lot of the pathogens we made vaccines against are pathogens that have shown us that we actually aren't all that. Let's go back to the immune system as an army analogy. In this scenario, our white blood cells are our soldiers, and some soldiers are experts at killing enemies, some are amazing troop leaders, others are super-efficient messengers, and others are specialized weapon manufacturers. B cells, a type of white blood cell, hold a monopoly on the manufacture of an extremely specific and versatile weapon known as the antibody. Antibodies are small molecules that recognize targets with excruciating specificity. Upon binding to a target, antibodies can serve as red flags to target an enemy for destruction, They can prevent the function of enemy molecules and can even initiate a cascade that physically punches holes on the surface of intruders. So that's a quick, very surface level description of our players. Let's move into a simplified version of how the army works as a whole. The primary immune response refers to the surprise, the immune response that occurs when someone is exposed to a pathogen for the first time. This immune response is characterized by a lag period of 7-10 to days, and during this period it is common to show symptoms and feel like you're not getting better. But that's just because your soldiers are figuring out how to best deal with the enemy, and your B cells are in the process of mass producing antibodies. Recovery from disease depends upon many factors, But the presence of enemy-specific antibodies plays a huge role on how fast and efficiently you'll win the war. So, assuming you don't die, aka your body is able to successfully clear the infection, something really cool happens. While some soldiers will pass away from old age, some others will take on the job of preserving the memory of the war by safeguarding the blueprints to the antibodies that help them win it. The blueprints and the antibodies are not just stored though, they are carefully analyzed and modified to grant them even more specificity, just in the case that the enemy attacks again. Immune responses following the primary immune response are collectively and creatively known as secondary immune responses. These immune responses are much more potent due to the presence of memory cells and pre-existing antibodies. They have a lag phase of only one to four days and produce as many as a thousand times more highly specific weapons than primary immune responses. Our secondary immune responses are so effective, in a lot of cases, you won't even notice that you were infected, even if the enemy organism is a dangerous pathogen. How cool is that? So, To summarize, the first time you're attacked by a specific enemy, your soldiers will do all they can to fight it off, but it is the second time, and times following the second time, that we are the most efficient at fighting it off. And, I mean it makes sense, the second time your warriors are exposed to an enemy, they have already gotten some sort of training, so they're way better prepared. Now, where do vaccines come in? Well let's first look at what vaccines contain. Here's Dr. Schenkel.
1: So what you typically do with a vaccine is you come up with an idea um, based on human immune reactions to a a certain pathogen. And what we try to do is we find out what parts of that that virus or bacteria is causing a good antibody or other white blood cell response to the vaccine. Once we nail down what molecules are involved in a good immune response, Then we can take those parts out and use those as targets. The earliest vaccines, we did it much more crudely. We would take basically the entire intact pathogen and we would kill it. And we would take that dead pathogen and we would simply use that as our vaccine components. The challenge is that the components of some of those bacteria can be dangerous. They have little toxins that are built into them. And so people started saying, well, let's take out the dangerous toxins and make them into toxoids. And so we've got modifications there. Um, For things like the flu virus, the way that 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 vaccine is made is we take the parts of the human flu virus um, that can cause uh, good immune responses in us, and we put that into a a different type of flu that doesn't normally infect us. This is called an attenuated vaccine. And we can attenuate pathogens in a wide variety of ways.
0: Before we move on, I want to clarify what a toxin is since everyone seems to be throwing the word around to advertise detox programs and quote-unquote organic products. Which, to be honest, is one of my biggest pet peeves. So, here it goes. Toxins are molecules that cause damage, or in other words, are toxic, in low doses. Toxins are naturally derived, which means that they're produced by plants, animals, and microorganisms. So yeah, Toxins are 100% natural, just like cyanide. And if you love sketchy marketing strategies, toxins are also quote-unquote organic. Okay, back to vaccines.
2: With vaccines, the idea is to expose them to parts of the infectious agent that the immune system will recognize. And then respond by making antibodies against that specific pathogen. But the vaccine itself is safe in that it cannot produce the disease that you're trying to vaccinate against.
0: So, vaccines can contain different parts of a pathogen. These parts are selected due to their ability to induce an immune response. Molecules that can induce an immune response are called immunogens, but you might also hear scientists refer to them as antigens. Immunogens are the most critical part of a vaccine, but they are not the only components. A lot of people who doubt vaccine safety are concerned about the other things that vaccines can contain, such as preservatives.
2: This relates back to you know, 10 or 20 years ago um, when vaccines, um, some vaccines, not all vaccines, uh, uh, were um, stored using a preservative. Uh, this preservative is called thimerosal and it does contain low levels of mercury. Um, and so that is a concern, and um, I would consider that, as a parent, a legitimate concern. However, there's been extensive studies over the past 20 years looking at the link, potential link between vaccines that have this preservative, this thimerosal, and um, other diseases or disorders or defects in, in individuals that receive those vaccines. And... There has been absolutely no link established between any vaccine, regardless of the preservative that used, if there is one. Since I would say about 2005 or so, um, thimerosal is no longer used in vaccines. So that's not a a present day concern at all. There are other concerns related to things uh, that we can add to vaccines that help make them work better and maybe you don't have to give booster shots. Uh, we call those things adjuvants.
1: So when we try and make a vaccine, it has to appear to be dangerous, even though it's not necessarily dangerous. Um, and a lot of the vaccines that we use, if we just injected the the vaccine itself without an adjuvant, it wouldn't appear dangerous enough to make us have a good immune response against it. So what an adjuvant does is it traps or activates the immune system more so that whatever we use in the vaccine appears to be dangerous enough and then we get a good immune response. Um, As an example, the hepatitis B um, vaccine is just a single protein that's the outer shell, if you will, of the hepatitis B virus. That protein by itself is not very dangerous looking to our immune system, and we don't make a very good immune response to it. So you actually have to get multiple shots to the hepatitis B virus in combination with an adjuvant to make it appear to be something dangerous. Um, now, most of the adjuvants that we use in people are generally themselves not very dangerous. The most common one that we have in most of the vaccines these days is aluminum, aluminum um, usually in the form of like aluminum hydroxide or aluminum phosphate. Um, we ingest aluminum all the time, and what aluminum does in this particular case is it holds on to the components of the vaccine in a structure that to our white blood cells makes that structure look really weird and dangerous. And so the white blood cells will react to it and say, ooh, this is something weird and awful. We need to react to it.
2: And again, uh, alum has been used for 30 years. Uh, there's no link between its use as an adjuvant and any adverse side effects to vaccinations. But because of uh, concerns raised by the general public, the use of vaccine of alum as an adjuvant has actually decreased. and Clinicians are now going back to having several rounds of boosters rather than using an adjuvant. That has its own problems with, you know, getting compliance, making sure you know that individuals receive all of the boosters they need.
1: Um, a lot of the vaccines that we use these days don't actually have um, any adjuvants in them. Uh, just a list of things that don't have adjuvants in them are the chickenpox virus uh, vaccine. Mumps and measles, mumps, rubella vaccine doesn't have an adjuvant in it. We usually use adjuvants in combination with um, the diphtheria, um, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, the DTAP vaccine. Um, the pneumococcus vaccine, that one also usually has the aluminum hydroxide associated with it. But those are about the only things that we usually use. Now, some people are concerned, does that dose of aluminum, is that toxic to my cells? You know, it's not going to be very toxic to most of the cells in your body. We ingest, we inhale, we drink aluminum all the time because it's just a common part of the earth. You know, all the stuff that's in our water contains aluminum and other metals. So we ingest it all the time, and the amount of aluminum that you get in a vaccine is teeny tiny amounts.
0: In addition to immunogens, adjuvants, and preservatives, vaccines may also contain stabilizers which protect the vaccine from suboptimal environmental conditions. Used stabilizers include amino acids, sugars, and proteins, all biological molecules which, again, have been proven to be safe. Additionally, trace amounts of manufacturing residuals can be found in some vaccines, and include agents that were used to inactivate the pathogen, and antibiotics. In some cases, antibiotics are used during manufacturing to ensure that no unexpected microorganisms are growing in the vaccine solution. And again, these trace amounts aren't harmful to our bodies, and it is also important to note that if antibiotics are used during production, manufacturers are very careful and never use antibiotics that commonly cause allergic reactions, such as penicillins, sulfonamides, or cephalosporins. So, vaccines must contain an immunogen, which is selected given to its ability to produce a primary immune response. This will allow our bodies to prepare in advance for a battle with a dangerous pathogen. In addition to an immunogen, vaccines may or may not contain adjuvants, preservatives, stabilizers, or trace amounts of manufacturing residuals. And while all of these words might sound scary, numerous years of research and published papers say that there is normally no need to be scared. And when I say normally, I mean normally, because as with everything, some health concerns do exist. Next time, we'll be looking at legitimate health concerns surrounding vaccines, and we'll also discuss this growing belief that vaccines can cause autism. Alright, we have reached the end of this episode, My name is Melba Torres, and this was Science Spread. As in, science spread, not science Bread, although that's what it sounds like. Anyways, don't forget to spread good science and contain misinformation. Oh, and don't forget to wash your fruits and your veggies before you eat them. Organic or not, they likely still have some pesticide on them. Until next time.